Heavenly Father, we ask through the blood of Jesus who enabled us to come into your presence through the Spirit. We ask for your Spirit to fall upon us. We ask for an anointing first upon me and then upon all of us. Lord, put your words in my mouth so that we are not simply listening to a human being. And we ask that you would use your word, open your word to us, and show us great and mighty things in it. And in doing that, we ask you to enlighten the eyes of our hearts uh, so that we are changed. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy, but he's on sabbatical, so I'm here. Don't tell him I said that, would you? <laughs> well, we're talking about the 4th of July, Independence Day. Incidentally, it is the 245th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence, as we all know, was birthed as a result of and part of the American Revolution. What I want to talk to you about this morning and really challenge you and call you to is a higher revolution. And the declaration that is born out of that higher revolution is called a declaration of interdependence. And what do I mean by that? Well, the world is desperate for peace and unity. They are more so today than they ever have been, but they have been down through the centuries, down through the generations, because any study of our history, not just the American history, but any study of world history, reflects that our history is written in bloodshed, it's written in wars, misery, uh, heartbreak, uh, and people are desperate to see that come to an end they feel like if there could just be peace and unity, that that would come to an end. Uh, in fact, uh, we have, for example, the United Nations. That was formed with the hope of creating uh, a, a greater unity, uh, establishing peace so that we didn't have a third world war. Uh, the preamble to the United States Constitution begins, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. And leaders are always promising uh, that they're going to make every effort to create unity with the opposition. Uh, they're going to bring unity. Uh, it doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because they don't understand that they can never attain unity because we are all infected with the sin nature. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that they have the sin nature means that primarily the sin nature is self-interned. Uh, self in, in other words, the, the focus of the sin nature is on themselves. So you're trying to have unity with millions of billions of people who focus on themselves first. It isn't going to happen, but they are going to continue to try to do so. 
and eventually they are going to bring about a one world government in the hopes that that will happen. Uh, scripture says that's going to happen and eventually the Antichrist will take control of that one world government. First Thessalonians 5.3 says, when they say peace and safety at last, sudden destruction will come upon them. Uh, they will never in their own strength uh, be able to create unity uh, or peace. Uh, now, the church has the answer to what they desire. The problem that they don't understand, one, they don't understand the sin nature infects them all. Secondly, they don't realize that the problem is fundamentally spiritual. And when the problem is spiritual, the remedy has to be spiritual. And that remedy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is demonstrated not only in word, but indeed in the lives of Christians. And that's the answer that the church has that they can give the world. And that is unity. But the unity that the church has to offer uh, is a supernatural remedy. Now, let me let us turn to Ephesians 3 uh, because I want to get into what this remedy, this supernatural remedy is about. But I will tell you that if the world could ever glimpse the true unity of the body, that's what they're hungering for, and they would recognize it, I think, pretty quickly, or a lot of folks would. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 9. Now, I'm aiming for verse 10, but I'm going to read 3, 9 and through 11. 3, 9 through 11. He says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, 10 is what I'm aiming at. 10, it says this, uh, it says, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now, when we talk about the word manifold, manifold means variegated. It's not part of an engine. It means variegated. And when you look up the definition of variegated, you find that it says to render variations. Now, variegated is often most frequently used in terms of various colors. So let me give you an example of that. I think it's more of a metaphorical example. But in 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And we frequently in the scriptures in the New Testament do see God analogized to light. Let me suggest to you that this unapproachable light as to this unapproachable light, the church acts as a prism that breaks that light down into different aspects. And to stay with the metaphor, it's a prism that breaks that white light down into various colors. 
But in fact, what we're talking about when it says the manifold wisdom of God, we are the variations. We each have different spiritual gifts. We each have different abilities that have been given to us. We are from different nations. We are from different races. We have different personalities. We are each one separate individuals. But we are all one in Christ. And because of that, that creates the basis of this supernatural unity I'm talking about. In fact, what God is doing, and we get this from Romans 8:29 as well as 1 John 3, 2, God is changing us to look like and to be in the image of Jesus Christ. 1 John says in chapter 3, verse 2, we do not know how we shall appear, but we know this, when he appears, we shall see him as he is, for we will be like him. And so God is in the process of changing us uh, to be like him. And one of the aspects of who he is is this tremendous unity. So let me explain this as best I know how. Uh, and let me say this first. This is why I'm talking about the declaration of interdependence. We are dependent on him, and we are dependent on one another. And when we walk in unity, we are glorifying God. Jesus said in John 17 in his great high priestly prayer, the world does not know you, Father. Boy, they don't. They have a totally distorted idea of God if they even acknowledge him. But when we walk as he walked, when we walk in unity, when we walk like Jesus, we are glorifying God. Why? Because we are displaying what God is like. And when we walk in unity, we are particularly glorifying God uh, because that's a picture of he, the way he is. The unity exists among, among the Trinity. The Trinity is unified. How do they accomplish it? What, what's, what's the result of that? Or how does that happen? Because each member of the Trinity is others-oriented toward the other. In other words, each one glorifies the other. Each one exalts the other. They don't exalt themselves. They don't glorify themselves. They exalt and glorify the other. So when we walk in unity, uh, we're exalting God. We're glorifying him because that's the way he is. Uh, it's a tremendous picture. Now, it says, notice that the manifold wisdom of God. What would that wisdom be that he is displaying to the uh, powers and authorities uh, in the heavenlies that he is able to do this using weak human beings and that he will accomplish his purpose using us who are weak and easily failing and fallible, to put it that way. Uh, he is going to show them that he will bring about his purpose that he has eternally determined in advance by using those that he had originally created to partnership with him 
Adam and Eve were created to partnership with him. We are now brought back into that partnership. You don't have the sin nature anymore. You do have a body of sin that we still reside in that reflects the old sin nature. But you've been set free. That's already been stated. You've been set free. So we unify with one another in the Holy Spirit, and we glorify him. Now, I want to look at uh, Ephesians 4.1 uh, because, first of all, the first three chapters of Ephesians are a doctrinal statement of the great doctrines of the, tra- of the faith. Ephesians is a tremendous book, and the first three chapters lay the doctrinal foundations of the great doctrines of the faith. But beginning in chapter 4 with verse 1, we will then see the application of those doctrines in our lives. So verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3 are a summation of the first three chapters of Ephesians. 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the, and look at this, according to the power at work within us. 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then going into verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore a prisoner of the Lord I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, the therefore relates what he's about to say back to the first three chapters. And what he is going to say, he is going to explain. In other words, he says, I'm urging you to walk worthy of your calling. What he's going to do, beginning in verse 2 through verse 19 of Ephesians 6, he's going to explain what he means by that. But that therefore, yes, it relates back to the doctrinal dissertation, if you will, the doctrinal foundation that he's laid out in the first three chapters, but in particular, it relates to verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, what did we say is one of the great ways to glorify him? Walking in unity. All right, now in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's going to say, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of the Lord. And the very first thing he's going to go with, beginning in verse 2, is unity. In fact, he will go back and forth with unity all the way through the rest of Ephesians. But verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope and belong to your, and that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go back to... If you would, let's go back to John 17. John 17, verse 20. Jesus here praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the great high priestly prayer. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, folks. We're being prayed for at this moment by him. 
Why? What's his desire? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I would suggest to you that the point of the unity that he's praying about is that the world, when they see it, may realize what it is and who it is that is providing it. In fact, let's go over to Acts 4. Now, I'm going to get back, Acts 2, I'm sorry. I'm going to get back to Ephesians uh, in another couple hours. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42, uh, it says, and and before I start reading this, let let me make the point. Remember that I said the reason the world can't come up with unity is they're self-oriented. It's all about them. The reason we're able to to display unity, or should be, is because we are others-oriented. Unity is based on loving one another with us putting the other ahead of ourselves. Now, here is an example of it in the early church in Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fe- to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there was a various aspects that were bringing people to Christ, the preaching of the gospel, but I would suggest to you one of the major aspects was the unity of the believers that was being displayed. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go sell all your property. What I'm suggesting the value of that verse is it shows that those people had others in mind over themselves. They were others-oriented. In fact, folks, that's a picture of what Christian fellowship is supposed to be. We today kind of think of it as yak and snack, but it is not. It is putting them, the other one, above yourself. Now, let's go back to Ephesians, and I want us to look first at Ephesians 4.3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, now, we can go in, there's a lot we can go into here, but we're going to scratch the surface. I'm hoping by the end of this, you've at least got an itch. So, look at verse 3. Notice where unity comes from. It does not come from us. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We are not called upon to create unity. That's already been done by the Lord. We are called upon to eagerly maintain that unity. Now, if the seeing of the unity of the church would impact the unbeliever, the rest of the world, so that which they hunger for, they suddenly see functioning in the church, what do you think the devil's opinion is? 
He has no desire to see that happen. In fact, his attacks on the church most commonly occur by creating as many different divisions in the church as he can. In fact, um, for example, uh, the church is full of problems like uh, false teaching, heresy, uh, doctrinal disputes over secondary doctrine, uh, but even more detail getting down in amongst us foot soldiers, uh, disputes, offenses, offending one another, uh, uh, causing uh, difficulty, uh, backbiting, uh, gossiping, uh, criticizing, negative attitudes. Okay, we know from Ephesians six eleven that Paul says, "Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." It's the schemes of the devil that divide us. That's why he's doing it. He's trying to take advantage of our lack of understanding, our lack sometimes, unfortunately, of spiritual maturity. We don't do what Jesus told us to do about how to deal with disputes, how to deal with offenses. Uh, we're too caught up in our own self-interest. Notice what he says in Ephesians 6, 12. First of all, in verse 11, he says that we are to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is where a tremendous amount of spiritual warfare goes on. It's within the church in an attempt by the devil to create divisions that destroy that supernatural unity so that we are backing off from one another and we are no longer eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit in what? The bond of peace. In fact, the reason why it says in verse 12, we do not war against uh, human beings, flesh and blood, is because the enemy uses flesh and blood to hide what he's doing. So our focus is on the people who are disputing with us, offending with us, offending us, or that we're offending, and we don't realize that the devil is behind it. Now, the devil, the word, means a couple of things, but one of the things devil means is the one who divides. And I hate to tell you this, folks, but I think he's done a fairly good job of accomplishing what he's trying to do. Because he uses flesh and blood so we won't recognize who's really doing it, who's really behind it, because we have authority over him in Christ, and he didn't want us to realize that he's the one behind it. Because if we knew who was really behind it, we could start taking authority over him. Now, what Paul does, let's go back to verse 2, because he's going to explain to us now how do we go about accomplishing this, maintaining this unity. Not creating it, but maintaining it. He says, first of all, verse 2, with humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. All right, now, there are four qualities there. The first two are qualities that are within us, humility and gentleness. The second two qualities interact with the people that are our brothers and sisters, uh, patience and, long, and uh, bearing with one another in love. 
Now, I'm not going to have time to do anything but the first one, which is humility, and I can tell you we're not going to cover it in great depth. But humility is first listed here because the other three flow out of it. Humility allows you to begin to have that others focused. In fact, the Beatitudes, uh, humility is described in the Beatitudes. It's the first Beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the rest of the Beatitudes flow out of that. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek or gentle. Uh, so what we're going to do is look a little bit at humility in the time that we have left. The first thing we do is we humble ourselves uh, before the Father. Uh, verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, the roaring lion seeks to whom he may devour. That includes creating distension and disputes within the body. And the problem is we're suckered into it so often. So, first, we submit ourselves to God. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand. How do you do that? Well, I would suggest to you, you start by telling him that that's what you're doing, that you want to do that. Uh, and I, do I always do it? No. I've got some kind of, I'm like, have you ever tried pushing a beach ball under the water? <laughs> Boop. Up it comes. Push it down again. Boop. Okay, it's a battle. It's a battle. Whenever I catch it coming back up, I submit myself to God. Because it's not initially natural. Now, the next thing we do is we focus, submit yourself to God, then focus on the brothers and sisters. Okay? Now, let's go over to Philippians because it's dealing with the same subject. Philippians 2. He says, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, thank you, Paul. Now, how do we do that? Verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. There it is again. Count others more significant than yourselves. Now, in the NASB, this is ESV. NASB, I kind of like a little better. It says, consider others more important than yourselves. And then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? It's a mind of humility. And then he describes in verses 6, 7, and 8 how Jesus did not count divinity, you know, being equal with God, something to be held on to, but humbled himself and became a man and died on the cross. Aren't you glad? 
Uh, now, what we have to do when it comes to following through with what Paul is saying, considering others more important than yourself, let me suggest, and I'm just telling you on my own experience, whatever, for what that's worth, we have to consciously do that. Yes, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit being in you. No question about that. But the Holy Spirit is going to partner with you, and you and the Spirit together are going to be changed into the image of Christ. And so when it comes to considering others more important than yourself, I find that I have to consciously do that every day. In fact, I have to ask the Lord at the beginning of the day, help me to do this. And when I'm dealing with certain people that are sometimes obnoxious, I need to be prompted, which he will, by the Holy Spirit. Remember, consider others more important than yourself. Oh, no, I was going to sue him. <laughs> we start this. It's not, it hasn't been natural for us, but we start this by consciously practicing the doing of it. Does that make sense, folks? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't eventually become second nature, but you start out consciously doing it, and so many of us never do it at all. We never even get to this point. Uh, we're still thinking more about ourselves. Uh, we're still living more for ourselves than for him, and it's something we have to learn to do. Justification is a legal fact that occurs instantly when we receive Christ for what he did for us. But sanctification, which we're talking about now, is a process. And it goes on through the duration of your life. So to humble yourself, you start with the Lord, but then you consciously begin to look at others as more important than yourself, consider their interests. And I have to be reminded all the time by the Lord that I need to do that. Uh, now, does anybody else know what I'm talking about, or am I the only carnal individuals in here? And Jesus has told us how to deal with these divisions that the enemy like disputes. For example, in Philippians 4.2, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. They were high, they were, we know from Philippians 4 that they had high visibility in the Philippian church. They were doing damage to the unity of the church by continuing to dispute, and everybody knew about it. That's why Paul called them by name in Philippians. How do you deal with disputes? Well, Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 6, and we don't have time to really get into this uh, in depth, but why not submit let the other have what he's, what he's arguing for. Paul says, why not be defrauded? He said, you shouldn't be suing brothers. I get that. I get Christians coming into my office, and they want to sue somebody. I said, are they Christians? Well, ye, they say they are, but they're not acting like it. <laughs> oh, okay, well, let's sue them then. <laughs> my uh, favorite example is actually CBN the broadcasting company in Portsmouth, Virginia, uh, back in the 70s, they took Jesus' statement literally about um, Jesus said if they, and, and of course, I don't, let me, let me just say, I don't like this verse. Jesus says if they sue you for your 
coat, give him your cloak. Okay, that puts lawyer out of business. <laughs> CBN had an interesting policy. Their view was if anybody demands anything from us, we will give them twice what they've demanded. Uh, in the early 70s, they got a demand from the city of Portsmouth for back taxes they didn't owe several thousand dollars with a threat to sue them. So CBN, rather than paying them what the city of Portsmouth was demanding, doubled it and paid it to the city of Portsmouth. Now, is that revolutionary? Do good to those who do evil to you? Okay, some years later, the federal government came in and started trying to interfere with CBN, and the city of Portsmouth went to bat for them. You know, we do good. See, that's the sort of thing that the world is hungry to see. It's revolutionary, and we function according to revolutionary standards. All right, we're going to have to quit, but um, there's a lot more we could do. I would suggest to you that we should continue, as many of us are, praying for revival. But I think it may be, this is my opinion, I can't, I'm not citing you scripture, but one thing that may be holding up revival is the church getting its act together and beginning to walk in unity. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. But one comes after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, fire can mean judgment, but it can also mean cleansing. And we need to be cleansed. Uh, we need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and with fire. A.W. Tozer once made this statement. He said, don't expect a revival in which God brings thousands upon thousands of people into the church when the church is loaded with people who are not spiritually mature. Now, I didn't say that. A.W. Tozer did. I'm going to close with a verse in Isaiah, and then we'll be done. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, because this is the secret of unity that we've been talking about. Verse 2, all things my hand has made and so all these things came to be declares the Lord but this is the one to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word let's pray Heavenly Father we confess that we have not been walking in unity so often so often we have been victims of the devil's schemes. But Lord, we renounce him now. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would prompt us as we walk from day to day to begin to look at others more important than ourselves, to look out for their interest as well. Lord, we ask that you would cause the church to display the supernatural unity of the Spirit 
that the world is so hungry to see that they may, in the power of the gospel being spread among them, that they may also come into the unity that is provided by the Holy Spirit. Lord, if there is anybody in this congregation right now who is holding bitterness, who is holding offenses, who is full of anger, I ask you right now to convict them and bring them into a godly sorrow that results in repentance. Lord, we do ask for our nation, but first and foremost, we ask for the church. And we ask and plead with you to bring the church into that supernatural unity, bring repentance, and bring us into the power of the Holy Spirit and bring a powerful great awakening that doesn't lead millions into the church, into salvation, but leads billions. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, and we ask and we give him honor, glory, power, majesty, and dominion in this world and in the next. Amen.